What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do people realize that their their theology is completely engulfed and enwrapped with the Messiah? We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Welcome to Messiah Matters, show 202. My name is Caleb Hegg. I'm coming to you from the Torah Resource offices in Tacoma, Washington, and in the cold, dark, damp corner of his own basement in Spokane. Rob Vanhoff, what up, Rob? How's it going, buddy? I want to know what the gematria of Tacoma is. <laughs> oh. Or the paleo, the paleo Hebrew the paleo message Hebrew of, of, the, yes. of, of Tacoma. I think it's, you know, because I know it's a, we think of it as an Indian, you know, Native, uh, Native American well, yeah, originally term. Tahoma, right? But I think since they come from the tribes of Israel, and we know <laughs> oh, that no. from Mormonism, Joseph Smith and, sure. and other early, um, you know, actually before Joseph Smith, we had back into the 18th, I think even 17th century, we had people saying, look, these tri- these native tribes here are basically speaking Hebrew. And they are the lost tribes. So... I think where Caleb lives and uh, broadcasts from has a. <laughs> you should mystical. write a book. You should. <laughs> no. You should write a book. All those have been written. Many books are where 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 out the flesh. It says in Ecclesiastes. Well, it's been a week. Have you had a good week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good. I've I had, love the fact that they're putting the all these manuscripts online. Yeah. Like know, which ones can, which ones are you looking at? Well, I have been looking at uh the Palestinian Talmud or the Talmud Yerushalmi is available online, which is a um I think it's a thirteenth is a thirteenth century manuscript now. It's our earliest Talmud, Jerusalem, yeah, Talmud to, that's Jerusalem the whole Talmud, entirety. Yeah. But um I've been looking at how, you know, things that ta- where where there's places in the rabbinic literature where they quote what seems to be like knowledge that you think a Masary would have, something pertaining to an odd spelling or or something like that. Am I smelling a SBL paper 2018? Well, you know, I've got a deadline here mm-hmm. in mid-February to try to pitch a, you know, try to pitch a a, a talk at SBL in Denver, so... Um, anyway, that's what I'm working on. Nice. I've got a couple ideas, but anyway, we'll see. I'm, I'm writing now, uh, unlike Rob, since he's actually submitted and been accepted at the, uh, National Society of Biblical Literature, uh, all he has to do is submit an abstract 
and they'll accept an abstract and then may accept his paper. Mm. I myself, however, have not uh, have not done that yet. I haven't submitted a paper that's been accepted. So every time I submit, I have to write the entire paper before the deadline so that they can read the entire paper and see if it's something that they think is worthy. So I have the bare bones of a of a paper that has been written and uh, arguing on whether or not the two cups in Luke 22 are original or not, or whether or not it's an insertion. <clears throat> and um, so we'll see. I I got a lot of uh, I got a lot of work still to do if I'm going to submit a full paper by March 7th, which I believe the deadline is. So, all right. Well, we got a very small showing in the uh, in the in the chat room today, but we're happy everyone is there. Welcome mm-hmm. everyone to the chat room. We'd like to welcome everyone on Tor Resource Radio <laughs> as well. And uh, we'll just get this all out of the way real quick. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the Robin Caleb show shows you where my head still is. Messiah Matters, hey. rather. Eh, yep. Messiah Matters is brought to you.com. Uh, you can go to Tor Resource and find all sorts of great things. And, you know, I should tell you, we've talked about the uh, Tor Resource Digital Library before. And um, the Digital Library, <clears throat> I wanted to see, it took me several days to do. Uh, just an hour here, an hour there, but I wanted to see how much I thought, uh, how many, how much time in lectures and teachings was up on the library. Okay, now I I give you I, let's let's play a game here. You have a guess if you if you were to take all of the lectures in a row and all of the teachings that we have in the library on Torah Resource, and it is a paid service. I'm not trying to trick anybody here. It's a pay, paid service. Um, it costs about $8.26 a month, but you have to buy it in a year, so it's 100 bucks, $100 a year. How much, Rob, do you think, how much, how many audio lectures and videos and everything, the time put together without repeating one lecture, how much time do you think is up there? Oh, I have no idea. That's like, I, I, I mean, I would just say a couple hundred hours. couple hundred hours, Okay. But I, but that's, let me I'm break it shooting. down. Let me break it down for you like this. There's 72,304 72, minutes of lectures without repeating once. 72,000 minutes. That's right. So that Divided comes, that 60. comes, that comes out to 1,205 hours, which comes out to 50 days, 20 hours. So if you were to have a le- solid, solid, no repeats whatsoever. Not one repeat. So you could listen. If you if you have a library membership and you don't sleep at all and you just dedicate yourself to listening nonstop to what the what's on the library, you can listen for over 50, 50 days, 20 hours. How many total hours again? One more time. 1,205. But that's low because uh, we've had 1,200 hours. Okay. We actually we actually didn't factor in. Uh, some of the things that are new that are up there and, and things that keep going every day or every gotcha. week rather. So, yeah. So anyway, go to Torah Resources. Tons of free stuff up there too and, and it's uh, well worth checking out including one of the papers that I'm going to reference. Call 253-465-3205. I just did the math. Sorry. That's a part-time job. Uh, 50, 1,200, 1,200 hours. Divided by 52 weeks, that's 23 hours a week. So yeah. if you you could have a part-time job for, uh, for a year yep. and 
just listening to be caught up. Plus, by the time you get to the end of the year, we've added content. So, right. And that's just audio. Right. That's not reading anything. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Okay. Okay. Anyway. okay. And then finally, uh, send us emails, chag at torresource.com. It's chag at torresource.com. I don't know why, and I'm sorry if I seem distracted right now. My CPU is, is just way overdriving, and I'm not sure why. On both of my computers, <clears throat> for those who don't know, I have quite the setup here. You can't see it, but I actually have three screens in front of me. That's why you'll see me look around all the time. <clears throat> and then I have two lights. <clears throat> and so it really looks like I'm much more important than I am. And two keyboards, nonetheless, because I got two computers that are running. And basically what I have to do is I have to broadcast everything that we're doing on one computer. And then I have to, uh, and then I have to uh, view everything uh, else so that my CPU is not uh, too overdriven, uh, like YouTube and everything on a different computer. So it's quite the setup. And it took us, what, five years to figure out how to do this right. <laughs> uh, yes. All right, good times. Well, let's... let's. I, I have a good quote I want to share. Okay, I'm going to mute myself. Hang on just a second and cough real quick. Hang on. Okay. So, okay. Go ahead. I, it didn't mute for me. I no, it never mutes for you. It okay. only mutes for them. Anyway, I like this, uh, this quote. This is from Robert Brody, Mishnah and Tosefta Studies. Everybody's interested published by Magnus Press in Israel. We were talking um, about anyway. this before we came on air. This is super yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Keep going. Well, anyway, this is a side. There's stuff here that Caleb will probably use for his uh, for his thesis. But anyway, just check this out. He uh, Brody quotes uh, Shaul Lieberman, or Saul Lieberman, who was a major um, rabbinic scholar in the 20th century. Like, major, major, major. He, interesting story, he... Uh, received Semicha as a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi in Israel, had endorsements from like the major rabbis in Israel. This is before the state of Israel, right? So this is before 1948. Uh, so the chief rabbis, both I think the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi uh, rabbis of Israel, thought this guy was a gaon, that he was a brilliant prodigy. Well, he came to America, he needed a job, and he took a job at... Uh, Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS, which is a conservative, right? And it had been around for a couple decades, you know, right. started by Solomon Schechter. And so the rabbi, the Orthodox kind of disowned him, and they had to start going back and, like, re-editing <laughs> and taking that they had called him, like, the great rabbi, the rav, the great rabbi, the, go the brilliant, you know, because they're like, oh, man. But he never... But he just took a job at a conservative thing. He, it, it, uh, you know, so he could teach the Talmud. Anyway, right. interesting uh, story there. There's a book on that by a guy named Mark Shapiro. It's in English, but it has all the Hebrew text as well. Uh, it's uh, Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox, I think. Shapiro, S H I P, S H A P I R O. Mark M A R C. Anyway, uh, Brody quotes Lieberman, and and. I have the Hebrew, but the, the English translation is this. Lieberman says this. Scientific methods are only craftsmen's, craftsmen's tools in the hands of a craftsman. When they fall into the hands of unqualified people, lo, it is possible to ruin and destroy much more with tools than with bare hands. 
So I'm going to read that one more time. Scientific methods are only craftsmen's tools in the hands of a craftsman. This reminded me, Caleb, of your dad. Many times I've heard him, and I've seen him in writing too, because his love for woodworking, right, and and high appreciation for sharp. Uh, okay, okay, hang on, just a, a planer, right. exactly. But but but, but Lieberman's using the same thing. But He's saying hang, you can do more damage. Right now, one of those tools can do more damage in the. Uh, let, let me explain when, this real quick. Hang on, just a sec, because my dad is is a is a very very skilled. Uh, uh, carpenter, uh, my parents' dining room table, all of their bookshelves. Um, I mean, and and very. He made this gorgeous china cabinet. You know, he's remodeled almost every home in their, every room in their home. Now, he if if you give him like a planer or you give him a chisel, that's a good one. You give him a chisel, and he can actually carve beautiful, beautiful uh, things into into wood. You give me a chisel. <laughs> and I will ruin whatever it is you want me to work on. <laughs> I guarantee it. Man, I, I, I had the, yeah, the, the point is, is that I did not inherit my father's, uh, my father's ability to work with wood. And if you give me a tool like that, I will ruin stuff. Um, so the point, so, well the, so the, the tool, or you could say the same thing with like a knife and a chef, right? Right. Who's preparing food, right? The same kind of thing. In the hands of unqualified people, it's possible to ruin and destroy much more with tools than with bare hands. So anyway, that just stuck out to me. I like Lieberman's – this is Brody quoting Boy, we, we've seen that this week in Tacoma in, at two different congregations. Two different, oh, yeah? con- two different congregations have really had some uh, unfortunate things that have, that have happened this – and, and uh, from the pulpit, which is uh, very unfortunate. Um, okay. So let's go now to, uh, you want to answer a question? Sure. Okay. Uh, this is from Tanya and she left this comment. I believe this was on our, it might've been an email. I think it was an email. Anyway, she says, uh, my community is studying the book of Matthew right now. In our discussions, there has been some disagreement over whether put away and certificate of divorce are referring to the same or two different things that would be in regard to Joseph wanting to put away Mary. This is in Matthew uh, chapter one, uh, uh, wanting to put away Mary. And then Yeshua's teaching in chapter five of Matthew. Uh, Maybe one of you could throw in your two cents worth on that topic. Thanks. Chapter five or it's, or 19, isn't it? It's both. So, um, okay. Okay. So it's uh, five thirty one. Matthew 5.31, and then uh, Matthew 19.3 as well. So let's read Matthew 5.31. And I'm reading out of the NASB here. And what's interesting is that the NASB is different uh, than the ESV. So the uh, the NASB says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. But in the ESV it says, uh, planned to divorce her secretly. Uh, the word here for uh, to put her away or, or send her away, I'll probably mis, uh, mispronounce this and you can correct me, uh, Rob, is apalusai. Apalusai. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then in Matthew 5.31, reading out of the NASB again, it says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, same word here, apalusai, 
let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is a different word, certificate of divorce. Um, apostasion, sion, apostasion. Um, and so, but the word uh, ap- apaluse is used in 119, 531, 19.3, and then also in Mark 10 and Mark 10, 4, uh, Mark 10, 2, and Mark 10, 11. Um, do you want to give your two cents first since you know Greek way better than I do? Well, I, I didn't prepare for this, so I'm just looking right now. I'm trying hmm. to find the... Oh, it's one night. Okay, I see 119. Yeah. Uh, it's it to center away. Right. right so right. so uh, here's my thought. I'll give you my thought while you while you look at uh, maybe 531. Well, 531. here's an important... Go for one it. One thing, and maybe, maybe Tanya noticed this, and may, maybe I was distracted when I was reading it, is that the the Torah passage from Deuteronomy that Yeshua cites in Matthew 5, the send away, is the same word in the Greek, is is the same word in 119. Did she make that connection already? I, I don't believe she did. So in other missed. words, the, uh, what, so, wait, wait, wait. What I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that the... Uh, in in the Tanakh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, the word apoluse is used to, to send a woman away, or a man away, I guess, to divorce, right? Correct. And it's it that's the the verb used in all three of these passages. In Matthew 1, where it says Joseph was going to send her away. Right. In chapter 5, when Yeshua actually quotes Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter 19, um, where the Pharisees ask Yeshua, is it lawful for a man to send away his wife for any reason? In other words, the, the issue there for any reason at all is, is added uh, by the Pharisees. So, uh, so back to, let's zero back into the, the core question is, is there a difference between the giving of the certificate and the sending away. Right. Is that the core question? Yes, I believe so. And my understanding, which is limited is just that the written certificate is, is just the public, like, uh, public registration of this act. Right. So I agree. So maybe she's asking when he says do it if he was going to do it secretly. So is that kind of the question then? Is what in in Matthew one when he says he was going to divorce her or send her away secretly that he was going to try to do it in not a broad public manner? I mean, it had to be registered, but that he was going to do it without a lot of fear. Or maybe in a different place. In other words, maybe they're not known well in Jerusalem. I, the way that I, I, I take it the same way is that the certificate of, of divorce is basically the legal way uh, to do something. In other words, a guy couldn't just say, you know what, uh, you, you burn my toast, you're out of here. He sends her out, right? She leaves, she goes back to her father's house or something like that. And then, uh, and then you know, the father comes up in arms and comes back to the man. Oh, what are you doing? You know, I'm going to bring legal action against you because you sent my, my daughter away. He says, no, 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 I never did that. She's making up stories. Hmm. 
In other words, you can't, you know, you can't just send somebody away. And not only that, but you have uh, requirements in the, in the Torah for if she marries another and then divorces that man, the first one can't marry her again. So basically the point is, is that you have to take her to the, to the priests. You have to take her to the judges. You have to get a certificate of divorce. You can't just send her away. That's the way that I understand it. In other words, it has to be a legal thing. Now, right. there, now there were public demonstrations, right? If a, if a, uh, if a guy thinks that his, his lady is cheating and the whole bitter waters thing, which is just a fascinating text in and of itself, but this is a public thing, right? Everybody knows. Yeah. Or, um, you know, if a, if a, a woman is found not to be a virgin on her wedding night, right? Man has the legal right to divorce, all these kind of things. So in other words, I think it, it's, you can't just assume- here's, an, here's another possibility, if I may, now that I chew on that. This is a great – first of all, thanks, Tanya, for the question because this – I'd never thought about this. If we zero in on Matthew one nineteen for a second. And the idea of secret. Yeah. yeah. He says, okay, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her. Right. So, so Matthew's telling us he knows something of, his char- of Joseph's character. Planned – and then in, this is the NASB – planned to send her away secretly. Right. But – in Greek, it's it's ebulethe lathra apalusai otain, which means we have the we have two verbs. Ebulethe is the one of him planning, and then we have the lathra, which is the secretly or quietly, and then we have apalusai, which is to send her away. I'm I'm open to exploring the idea, and I actually like the idea of that. The um, the adverb quietly or secretly could modify the verb planned or counseled in himself. So in other words, he didn't share this thought. He had the thought, but he had the thought secretly that he would send her away. Oh, so it wasn't that he was going to divorce in secret, but that he was planning it to yes, himself. Yes, and it's that time when he had cons- it said he was uh, uh, considering this. Right. That that the angel of the Lord came. In other words, so he didn't talk to her a, about it. Was it. A, it was a, exactly he hadn't mentioned it to anybody. Only in the counsel of his own heart had he entertained this idea. And it's at that point that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream, saying, "You don't even need to mention this. That strike that thought from your heart, <laughs> right? Or or get that rock out of your shoe, right? Right. right. This is and so now I'm I can't be solid and I would have to look at the usage of this of this adverb in other places and see if syntactically but by approximation it's it's sandwiched between two verbs so you have three in other words in the Greek you have three words in a row he planned then you have secretly to put her to send her away so the question is this adverb it could modify the verb that came before it, he secretly planned or quietly in his own heart planned. Interesting. Or he planned to send her away secretly. So the question right. is this adverb quietly or secretly, does it modify, which verb does it modify? And by proximity, it's right between both. So, and because it was in a dream that it says when he had considered this, behold, I, I favor and this is why I'm glad she asked the question because I never had looked at this before from this angle. I favor that reading. I, I mean, I, I'm inclined to say 
Yeah, he didn't mention this to anybody. Not even except her. Except way obviously way after the fact, he shared it in in retrospect, and that's how Matthew knows to tell us, right? Because this became the story became told, but but at the original time when this really was going down, I think Joseph. Why? I mean, he's a Torah observant man. Why would he not consider? Right? I mean, how would you not con- at least know that there's a legal. Uh, Action. situation. Yeah. yeah, that there's a legal uh, permission in the Torah for certain reasons, and why would he not have the thought to say, does this qualify even? Um, and then he doesn't want to disgrace her. He loves her, right? He's right. Not, he's not, it's not for himself. He's not trying to make himself look good. He's just, it's a legitimate conundrum. Right. Anyway, great question. Yeah, I like, I like it. Uh, I like the, uh, I like the thoughts on that too. Okay, um, just in case you don't know, the Robin Caleb show is brought to you by Torah Resource, but it's uh, also mainly brought to you by the support of our listeners. And if you'd like to help uh, continue this show, Messiah Matters, <clears throat> you can do you can go to uh, Torah Resource and donate. Make sure that if you're going to donate, you definitely leave a comment in the uh, in the comment section letting us know that you're you're listening to the to Messiah Matters because that's uh did I say Robin Caleb show again? I think I did at the beginning. Anyway. Um, Messiah Matters. Mm. Mm. Five five uh, <laughs> taste and see. Mm. Five years mm. will ingrain things into your head. You just say things, right? Anyway, so we are appreciative of everyone who uh, supports this show and uh, we hope that it benefits everyone. And also, uh, if you have a question like Tanya's, which was an excellent question, then please feel free to let us know. You can do so by giving us a call, 253-465-3205, or you can do so by shooting us an email, com. Okay, so let's get into it. The last, um, last week we talked about the Messianic expectation, and really it was kind of a fascination that I, I dug into with the, the Star of Bethlehem and what that might be. This week, I want to kind of continue on in that same idea of what was the expectation of people in the first century. And to do that, I think that we need to look a little bit at the, at the Torah. Um, and I don't know, in your show notes this week, for everyone who gets the show notes, <clears throat> you might realize that um, I put in a DVD series by Ariel Berkowitz uh, called The Exodus Gospel. I found this uh, this teaching to be absolutely fantastic. Uh, it was one of my, uh, one of the things that really kind of uh, built a lot of my understanding of the Exodus, um, and that was, that was because of the way that uh, Ariel teaches. Um, you can find that series on Torah Resource in the store under the videos section of our store, um, but it's called the Exodus Gospel, and so he got me thinking on these kind of things, and um, so. Rob and I were talking about First Corinthians fifteen one through five this past week as we were talking about what we we're going to talk about on this show. And uh, so let me read this real quick and I'll, I'll uh, and we can go from here because I want to get back into the Exodus and into Exodus 4, which I've found to be very interesting, which might seem totally off topic for the messianic expectation of the first century, Exodus 4. But I wonder if people in the first century had this in mind at all, or if we just see it in retrospect, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, and so maybe we're just seeing it because it's hindsight. Or did they see the same thing that I'm seeing in the first century? And how did they understand this idea of circumcision and what this was and, and the covenants and 
covenants or covenant and these kind of things. So these are kind of where we're going to go. Um, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Once again, I'm in the NASB. And it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Now, first of all, the gospel which I preach to you, right? Which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So the thing that I narrowed in on this, and maybe we should go a little bit farther in this, but what I narrowed in is that he talks about the gospel being preached, right? And he says that he delivered it according to the scriptures. Now he didn't have the he didn't have the New Testament in front of him, right? He's not right. he's not referring to the gospels. He's referring to the scriptures. Now, Rob, you made a great point the other day when we were discussing in private that uh, that he received something though. So maybe he didn't. You know, he didn't see it until he became saved. But was this a receiving after Messiah died? In other words, are they seeing it now from from hindsight back into the scriptures? Or was it something that was already believed about the Messiah? What are your thoughts on that? Boy, there's a lot to say. One of the difficulties that we have to resolve is Paul's testimony here in 1 Corinthians 15, like you read, I delivered you what I, what I received. Right. And, and then it's like, well, did he receive it from, did he receive it from men or from revelation? Cause in, in Galatians, he says, I did not receive this from man, but as a revelation. And, do and you, oh, wait, hang on just a sec on that thought. Do you think that that means on the road to Emmaus when he was blinded? Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Well, well, here, here's, because a, because I they go together they go together and this is why I think is that that's in, if we just look at Galatians as a footnote here from our other other conversation about First Corinthians fifteen and we think of Paul as saying I received as revelation I did not confer with flesh and blood in other words he didn't he, he didn't go and and uh, test it right away in other words he didn't look for validation he he accepted it as it. Uh, as it was because all his network by that point were not believers, right? Paul's basic net operating network were people who were of the same mind as he towards the believing communities. Sure. Um, so when he becomes a believer and then he's, of course he, he spends time with Ananias as we know from Acts chapter, I think it's Acts chapter nine or chapter eight, chapter nine, somewhere in there. Um, but then later he says he goes to Jerusalem to to he goes up by revelation to lay out the gospel that he's been preaching to see if he was running in vain, right? To see if he had run or had been running in vain. In other words, he eventually wants to he doesn't stay a hermit, even though he goes to he says he goes to Arabia. Um he doesn't stay a hermit. He he goes through this time where he has to unlearn, right? He has to relearn. You know, we talk about the things that a Gentile needs to learn as they come to the ways of Messiah and the scriptures of Israel, etc. But even a super ultra-zealous Torah uh, proponent like Saul of Tarsus, 
it's not like everything just clicked. Right? He had to like he had to go and I think he got it, but he still had to go. Wait a minute, that oh, means all I've, this all this other stuff now has to be reframed. All this I, other stuff that I used to think need to be reframed. I agree with you, but at the same time, I think what happened was he had to read back through the Tanakh bit by yeah. bit and totally see it from a you know all of a sudden now he's just I mean it's like he's eating it up, but it's like oh now it's now I see. Before That's I thought I, I saw. Exactly. That's why I think the second Corinthians three passage comes in here too, because he talks about those who are reading that reading the ancient covenant, but it's like there there's a veil over their eyes. In other words, it's the presence of the text, the presence of the scriptures in the synagogue does not automatically mean that they know right. what they're worshiping in the same way that he tells the Samaritan woman, y'all don't know. You worship what you don't know. In other words, there's, there's, or the, in Romans 10, he says they have a zeal for God, yeah. but not according to knowledge. And instead of submitting to the righteousness, what's righteous, righteousness in God's eyes, they're seeking to build and establish their own righteousness. That there's this fundamental problem with humans, whether it's the Samaritans or it's the Pharisees or, or Jews reading the scripture and having this veil over their eyes, and that that veil's removed only in Messiah. So, um, you know, we talked about, is it Simeon in the temple when, when Yeshua's circumcision and, and naming, right? Uh, where it says that he, the Ruach HaKodesh had guided him and revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. And then when he sees Yeshua, he says, I know it, and I think it's in the King James. Lord, let us now, thy servant, depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen the, the salvation, the glory of your people Israel, right? Right. I, I think that's a rough paraphrase. Um, and that's, like, amazing. But did he see that as an exegesis? In other words, when he saw the baby Yeshua, the infant, did he, like, oh, this is uh, this is the— Gematria, you know, this day is the gematria of this text in the scripture, and there, therefore, I know what this is in advance because I've stoned that at all. The ruach is overseeing what he pays attention to in the scriptures and in his life, and then the these confirmations come on the backside of it, saying, "Aha, I get it, I get it, it connects, it connects," and. Um, so back to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a long kind of footnote there. He says, I delivered to you what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. I think this is the, Paul's new life in Messiah that he's saying this. I don't think Saul of Tarsus, the, the, the ecclesia persecuting Pharisee, would have made that statement. He might have said, well, we don't, we're not entirely sure about the Messiah or... Um, and we know that later rabbinic, like in Mishnah Sanhedrin, a Jew's own death is said to atone for their own sin. But you're talking about so, you're talk, so, but you're talking about unbelievers here, and and I and that's just it is that I think that Paul was an unbeliever even before right before the death of the Messiah. I mean, obviously he comes later, but um, you know, and and we don't know how old Paul was when you know even when he was holding the garments for. Uh, right, for the right. people who were stoned and Stephen. A young man. Young, that. Yeah, young, yeah. probably. But I think there was a difference. The people who came before Messiah died that had faith 
right? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does that mean? It means that he had faith in the, in, in the promise. He, he had faith in the seed that was to come to crush the head of the serpent. And we have Yeshua's testimony. Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it. Yeah. And was glad. And he rejoiced. Yeah. So this is Yeshua testifying. And that's why they're saying, what do you mean? How can you testify about Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Right. How could you haven't seen Abraham? And that's when he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am, so yeah. The, yeah. So, um, but this idea, back to your point of Yeshua's testifying of Abraham's faith that somehow Abraham saw, just as he saw those stars and believed that Yeshua saw, or, or that Abraham somehow, by the Holy Spirit, saw in some level, it might, obviously, he didn't have the apostolic writings, right? He couldn't read 1 Corinthians 15. He couldn't read sure. the gospel according to Mark. But there's something there that he understood, and there's something there he understood with in Genesis 22 with the Akedah, because in Hebrews it says that this was a kind of resurrection. Like somehow right. this idea of substitutionary atonement, this idea of a one-sided covenant where God is going to do this. Okay, right? wait, hang on. But, but You know, all these things. But come to bear. Gary makes a great point in the chat room. He says, consider what the disciples understood and got wrong. I agree completely. But what we see from the disciples does not seem to be across the board, right? There, now, I know there's debate within the Qumran, uh, te, uh, the Qumran scrolls on whether or not they believed in two messiahs, one messiah that would suffer first and then reign, whether or not they believed in a messiah that came every generation, right? But they certainly talk about the messiah of, of Yosef and the messiah of, of David. There's two messiahs figures in some form at Qumran, right? And then you have people whom the Holy Spirit had revealed to them the coming of the Messiah, right? Like uh, Simeon in the temple, right? He, and even he, Isaiah, right? Because right. even John in the Gospel of John, he says, this is Isaiah said this when he saw his glory. And he cites not only Isaiah 53, who has believed our report, but Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah having this vision. So John quotes, I think it's in John 12, he quotes both those uh, you know, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and says this is when Isaiah saw Yeshua's glory. So this is still, what, you know, seven, 800 years ahead of time. So agreed. They, um, you know, it, Gary's point about the, is good. Gary's well, point about he, the disciples. He, well, because he, he they, quotes, he quotes, hang on, Gary goes then and quotes First Peter, and this is this is a great quote. First Peter 10, uh, uh, 1, 1, 10, 10 and yeah, 11. Yeah. As to this salvation, the prophets mm. who pro prophesied of grace that, the, that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Messiah within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and he glorifies uh, and glories to, the, to follow. Amen. And, and he goes on. Uh, Gary continues to quote First Peter, which is an excellent passage. But my point here is simply that it seems like it wasn't there wasn't a messianic expectation that was just across the board. It's not like Correct. everybody was like, he's going to come, he's going to deal with sin. But there was people who believed it. And then you have Peter, right? Who says we're gonna? You know, I'm par obviously paraphrasing, but you know, the, uh, the Messiah says, you know, I'm I have to suffer or whatever, and, and I'm gonna no, die. They're gonna I'm put gonna, me to death. No, no, I'm gonna. I'll fight with you. Let's go take Jerusalem, essentially. And and Yeshua says, "Get behind me, Satan! Don't you know?" Right. And so the point is that even the disciples, I agree with Gary, even the disciples 
are saying are they're not quite getting it until and even after he dies right on the on the road you know on the road out of Jerusalem Yeshua has to reveal himself through the scriptures to them so um yeah, I, I it's to me it maybe it's crazy but you think about like the airplane that flies from let's say Seattle to Hawaii or something right at at any one time yes the airplane is going to Hawaii right but at any one time, the plane is not aimed directly at Hawaii. It's always correcting, right? Right. It's it's always correcting, and then even at the when it when you, I've never been to Hawaii, but the idea is so the airplane comes to the airport, and they're going to say, okay, the air traffic control, you need to do another lap because this other plane got delayed or whatever. So now there's all these things that happen, where the airplane has to keep making corrections and adjustments, and it's not until it that final you know that final approach where it's squared off and it lands. And in the same way, I think like, yeah, the Messiah is coming, right? So Abraham knows the big picture. Yeah, the airplane's going to Hawaii, right? But his generation comes and goes, and other generations comes and go. They go, okay, the airplane's going to Hawaii. But there's all these corrections. And even right up to that last uh, Passover with Yeshua, the disciples like you just quote, Peter's just like saying, no, wait a minute. That's a, their plane can't go there. You know, that's not where we're going. Because Peter sees Messiah reigning in Jerusalem right. in his mind, and, and that's why that's why the other guys are arguing. Well, who can sit? Who's you know who's going to sit at Yeshua's right and left hand when we judge the tribes? Right? They're seeing the eschatological fulfillment of the Messiah reigning in Jerusalem in the physical world. But right? the, but in, my po- I, I agree. But my point is is that I think people like look. I think people before the Messiah came. It's just like all of us. You know, we talk about it all goes back to the doctrines of grace, right? Almost every conversation we have. For me, there was a a large time in my life where I fell away from faith, right? Now, does that mean that I was unsaved? No, but he gave you a big spanking or two. I I don't I don't I don't have the answers to that. But there was a time in my life where I know that the Lord turned me to him. And I wonder if it's the same with the disciples. They're following the Messiah, they believe, but they don't get it. They don't really get it. And, but there no. were people beforehand who did get it. And it seems like, you know, Abraham certainly did. He saw his day. In other words, he he realized that the Messiah was coming, that the seed was coming to deal with sin. And I think this was the salvation that the Holy Spirit enacted in people before the Messiah came, that they realized if the chosen before the Messiah came had faith in the coming Messiah that he would deal with sin. Exactly. And the core, it, it's inseparable when you unpack the whole seed, it's inseparable from what well, we say, Abraham, Avram in Genesis 15, the lesson that God reckoned something as Zedekah. God reckoned right. something. He, he accredited <clears throat> something. He labeled something and evaluated in God's evaluation as Zedekah or Dikaiosune in Greek, righteousness, that was associated with no work of Abraham, but simple trust that God is faithful to do, that God will do what he says he's going to do. Right. And then when, when you have that, and then you have the covenant that is cut right on the heels of that, that is described in Genesis 15, the vision of, 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 uh, that what was to come, the Ab- uh, or not, sorry, of the Exodus. And this is going to get us, I, Caleb, we're on our way, just like that airplane, we're on our way to Exodus 4. Yep. 
the, the one-sided covenant, the, look, your children are going to be slaves, but I'm going to bring them out. So, so Abraham doesn't leave without some, his, some few, uh, couple hundred year future, but he also has this long-term future with the stars, right? That your, such shall your offspring be. And this is Abraham realized it's all bigger than he could ever do. It's all bigger than him, right? Right. His, the generations that are going to be enslaved, what's he going to do? But there's nothing that he can do about it in his lifetime, right? It, it's not like he can save up a bunch of money and make sure that they never have to go to eat. I mean, it's, it's all God says this is going to do. This is what's going to happen. Abraham just believe, says, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is what is reality. And so in, in Abraham saying, and it says Abraham believed and God says, okay, that is what is righteous. That is a core piece for the gospel for us, because that means I don't try to do a bunch of stuff and then go, oh, God, um, try to call things righteous that aren't righteous, right? Uh, and, and that faith element. Uh, anyway, there's so much so, to say about that. So, so right, okay, ahead. hang on. With that being said, because this brings us now to the covenants, whether or not we'll get into Exodus today or not, that that doesn't matter. We can do that next week. Um, but this is all leading up into that, right? This and the interesting mm-hmm. thing as I study more and I and I dive. He's in, not even circumcised yet. Let's point right. that. I mean, because this is this is something he believed and understood before the sign of circumcision was even given to him. Okay, so talking about the sign of circumcision, right? Okay, so so what is the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant? I think that uh, most people know this. It's, it begins in Exodus 12, right? And it says in Exodus 12, 3, and I will bless those who bless you and those... And the Genesis, one who cur- Genesis. I'm sorry, Genesis uh, 12, 3. I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Amen. Or in your seed, all the nations of the earth will, will be blessed. That's beyond... He was like... Oh, uh, so what do you want me to do? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, well, no, uh, okay. but then, but no, no, but then he tries to do it, right? He tries to do it himself through Hagar. At and it doesn't, point, yeah. and it well, doesn't work. He, belie- he does believe, right? He does believe, but then there's like, but then the seasons come and go, right? The years come and go. And he's like, well, he tries, uh, he tries to do it himself. I misunderstand. Yeah, he he tries, starts doubting. Yeah. And that's, that's a good lesson for all of us. It's a, it's an important lesson for all of us is that, the seeds and Yeshua talks about the seeds that fall into the different types of situation, right? Well, so well, he, this, okay. The doubts, you know, doubts and stuff like this are are something we all have to deal with. The the most interesting thing is that this covenant, and we'll talk about what this covenant actually is because it's not just it is it's the it's the promise of the coming Messiah, right? This covenant is the promise of the coming of the coming Messiah, but. but Let's wait for a second. Yeah, on that. how are all these nations going to bless Abraham? Like, what is is he supposed to like get a Facebook account and, and try to get as many likes? Woo-hoo! Or, or a, <laughs> you know, is that how? It's like it is like there's a Facebook that has bless or curse, right? It has its button, and then Abraham was just a, like, but Abraham was already rich. That's just it. Abraham was already rich. He was he wasn't a pauper. You know, he was a, he was a wealthy wealthy man at this point. And so, uh, but then since he tried to do it through Hagar and since, you know, Sarah laughs and all these things, the, the sign of the covenant, the sign of the Messiah coming is that you, and what a barbaric action, right? To take away the flesh of, of the procre of the organ of procreation from the male. Why? 
Well, and this is where the, the virgin birth ties in so well, and this is why we see the virgin birth. It's prophesied through the act of circumcision, taking away the flesh of the male organ of repro uh, reproduction is saying that the, that the human element of, man, of the man will be taken out. It's taken off the table. Taken off the table, exactly. It's the same way of Abraham, like, look, only this, this lapid is going through the, only this pillar of, of, of flame is going through the covenant pieces. Right. This is not, Abraham has no uh, ability to alter the terms of the covenant. Uh, exactly. Against, right. Right. And exactly. that circumcision is just, is a seal of this faith, of this, but it's a sign of the Messiah. Thing. That's the greatest yeah. part. Is that is that the cutting away of the foreskin is is a sign of the Messiah coming? It is a, the sign that the Messiah will come through a virgin birth. That he won't have the sin nature, right? That the sin nature won't be there. That mankind can't do it themselves. They need God to help. It's an it's a wonderful picture. Let's move now to Genesis seventeen six through fourteen. And the reason I want to read this is because talking about the Abrahamic covenant. What is the Abrahamic covenant? And this is something that really struck me this week while I was studying uh, these passages out is, is this passage right here. And once again, I'm in the NASB. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. So this is important. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So all of a sudden, this covenant that he's talking about has land rights. But the Mosaic covenant is the one that has land rights, right? It's not the Abrahamic covenant, is it? Or is it? Because he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, there would not be land. The only reason there's land rights in the writ in the Torah of Moses is because of this, right? I mean, it's all, this is the foundation. Well, correct. And I will build, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in your flesh so of this your foreskin. Is, yes. This is after Ishmael. We just reiterate here. Ishmael's already been born. Right. Ishmael's what? They say 13 or whatever at this time. So, and 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 God's already said, no, <laughs> not him, right? So, okay, sorry, keep going. No, no, no. And so it goes on. But the point is, is that there's land rights here, and we're supposed to keep the covenant, Right. Does this just mean for uh, the circumcision or does it mean to keep the commandments? See, because what I see here in this passage is that the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are completely intertwined and inseparable. You can't separate the two. Yeah, the, the very Exodus, which we will get to when we get to Exodus 4, but the whole point of God's revelation to Moshe at the bush is, I am the God of Abraham. Right. In other words, you know, it's all contextualized. And even even how many times when Moses is dealing with Israel and, and their rebellion in the wilderness, he calls on, he says, not according to what we've done, but according to your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like Moses' whole framework for understanding what the Exodus is about, for what Mount Sinai is about, what the promised land is all about, is completely if that was a picture the framework is all and the backdrop 
is all covenant of Abraham. What's interesting is that for uh, believers who say that the law of Moses has been done away with, one of the things that they point to is the idea of circumcision, that Paul has spoken against circumcision. Circumcision is not the Mosaic Covenant. Circumcision is the Abrahamic Covenant, if we're going to separate the two. And, That's exactly right. And the Abrahamic Covenant is the promise of the Messiah and that all the nations will be blessed. You can't take that away. If you take that away, then the nations don't have the Messiah. Right? Again, you... even, even in John's Gospel, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, but it's not really of Moses. It's really from the fathers. Right. Which is really from the fathers. So even Yeshua... His te- teachings captured in, in the Gospel of John, Yeshua is making that point to people. Yeshua is, is in his teaching is saying, look, circumcision is from the fathers. It, and he's contextualizing how do we read Moses. Right. It, we have to understand it in terms of Abraham. So then let's move now to Exodus uh, and Exodus 4, 24 through 26, which is just a, a very, uh, what, what seems to be, at first glance, seems to be an out-of-place um, uh, story in the middle of this narrative, right? God tells Moses, go down to Egypt. You're going to be the mouthpiece, okay? And uh, you're going to tell Pharaoh that uh, his, you know, that he needs to let my people go. And Moses hymns and haws and whatnot, but basically he, he decides, okay, I'm going to do that. But then... And actually, right before this, I forgot to grab the passage right before this, because this is really, um, let's see here, Exodus, pardon me while I find this, for, let's say, 20 and following. So we have right here in... Oh, you're talking 21? And uh, yeah, 20, 21, 22. So let's start there. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. This is important. Yes. And it's the my first. My son, my firstborn. This is the first Israel. time in the entire Tanakh or in the entire Torah, that uh, the nation of Israel is referred to as such as Israel, before it's always towards a person, right? But this Mm -hmm. is the first time it refers to the nation, and it's called the firstborn son, very important. In 23, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we have firstborn son, he, he threatens Pharaoh's firstborn son, he refers to Israel as God's firstborn son, and then all of a sudden we have this, what seems like a very peculiar uh, passage. And we, we studied this in, um, I'm part of a small group uh, in here in Tacoma, and we studied this in small groups, so uh, those who might be in the small group who are listening to this, sorry for the recap. Um, but then he goes into 424, right, and we have this story. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's feet. Moses is not actually in there. It's touched his feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that he said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So, and then it goes back into the story. Then, then all of a sudden we're back into the story about the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness. So you have these two verses that seem somewhat peculiar. 
There are several things we can glean from this, though. First of all, one of Moses' sons was not circumcised. And so he's, he's breaking the very covenant that he's going to help fulfill in Egypt, right? Mm. The covenant of the Messiah coming forth from, from Abraham has to be fulfilled, and God's going to bring the nation of Israel out to do that and give them the land so that the Messiah can come, right? And uh, there's different commentaries on, on why Zipporah had to do this. I think uh, there was a really good commentary. I think it was in the JPS commentary, actually. He, he hypothesizes that Zipporah, because of Zipporah, where Zipporah was from and, and her culture, she was opposed to circumcision because she felt it was barbaric. And that uh, so it was because of Zipporah that they didn't circumcise the child. And so when Moses uh, is beginning to die because of the Lord, whatever that might be, sickness or maybe went into cardiac arrest, who knows? Zipporah says, okay, she circumcised the son, right? And now she's part of the covenant with Abraham, right? She's, she's now taking it upon herself to circumcise the child. I found that to be interesting, whether or not that was the case or not. But what we can say about this passage is that this firstborn son idea and circumcision, that is the sign of the Messiah coming, mm-hmm. is directly related to the Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. Moses isn't going to go down and, and be the mouthpiece for God to Pharaoh unless he's upholding the this, this passage. And finally, the last place I want to go today is Exodus 6, 4 through 5. Um, so Exodus 5, for those who might not know, is the story of how Pharaoh took away the straw, right? Aaron and mm-hmm. Moses go, they talk to Pharaoh, they, they tell him, hey, let my people, you know, let, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. In, in fact, I'm going to give him more work. So he takes the straw away, and that's what 5 is all about. So now 6 comes, and we have some interesting, some very interesting verses in, in chapter 6 of, of Exodus. But in verses 4 through 5, it says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. So once again, we have the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, directly linked with the exodus from Egypt. The Messiah is is intimately woven throughout the Exodus narrative. And we can look at more of this, right? I mean, as as Passover comes up, we can see the correlation, right? That it is, I've, I've said this before, I believe that the Exodus from Egypt, I know I've been talking a long time, I'll give you a few seconds here, and I'll give you some time in a well, few sorry, seconds. Go ahead. But I believe that the Exodus from Egypt is a direct prophecy of each one of our individual salvation. We were in bondage to, to sin, right? And to our, our own flesh, and with an outstretched arm, with, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God reaches in of nothing that we can do. Israel didn't have a choice. They couldn't leave Egypt. But with an outstretched arm, God reaches in and he gives us the faith and he brings us out from under the bondage and he brings us through the water as a new birth, as a new people, as a new person, right? And then we sojourn with him and through a time in the wilderness, we is sanctification, right? Until we reach the promised land. And that promised land is dwelling with our with our king forever. But sanctification is the wilderness, right? That's that's how I see 
the the Exodus. And I wonder if people whom the Holy Spirit had in uh, given it to understood these things, understood what circumcision was, understood what the promise was, understood who the seed was or what the seed was and what he would do, and then saw through the Exodus their own personal salvation through the Messiah. I wonder. Right. Well, this is confirmed. Paul talks about uh, baptism. They were baptized in the sea, for example, right? Um, Paul calls Yeshua the Pesach. Right. Right? Right. Is it First Corinthians five? Ten. But oh no, you're but, you're right. You're but five. Yeshua five, yeah. himself at the what we call the Last Supper, <clears throat> which we agree with Dr. Bryant Petrie. This is a all four gospels point to a Pesach Seder. Right. Uh, and that Yeshua is teaching. He's like unpacking <laughs> the whole meaning here, right? And he says and he also points that seed to I will I will eat it with you again in the kingdom. In other words, there is this worldly fulfillment that he's um, that is unfolding while he's having his last meal with his disciples. But then he's also pointing to a future as well. So there's this this thing that's going on. But I'm so glad that you you brought up uh, Exodus six because this is the the four uh, in certain rabbinic accounts that there, there's four cups of wine, right, in the Seder, mm-hmm. traditionally, and they relate to the verbs used in this passage. The first one is, uh, I, will, I will free you. That's, I will, I will cause you to go out, literally. Uh, hitzalti, I will deliver you. Vega'alti, I, that's the redemption. I will redeem you. And then lachachti in verse the first word in verse seven, velachachti, and I will take you for myself. So that this idea of these actions of God that God promised in advance before the actual this is still Egypt in bondage, right? But He's coming with Moses, and He's saying this is what's going to happen. And these four key things, I will, I will. Cause you to go out, which is I will free you, I will, uh, I will deliver you, or I will save you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to myself. That this is God unpacking whether the later uh, attribution of a, of a specific cup to each of these is just to highlight these verbs, these promises, or whether you know at what date those four cups were officially added, we can sideline. But the idea that that the actions are here. God says, I'm, I have remembered, like you said, that doesn't mean he forgot. Right. It means now is the time yeah. that I am going to act according to the covenant that I promised, the oath I swore by myself years and years and years and years ago, that now is the time that I'm going to act for that, for that covenant. And that he's doing these things because Israel cannot redeem themselves. They can't free themselves. They can't deliver themselves. This is an act of God that is non-negotiable. He's going to do this because he said he would, and he is faithful. He can't, he can't not do what he said he's going to do. Right. You know, there's uh, just on, a, on the fly here, I want to uh, go here to Exodus 6 again. 
um, two and three. There was someone um, I was listening to a teacher actually this morning uh, that was recorded from this past Shabbat. And uh, it's interesting because the small group, we, we talked about this last week. And so this has really been on my mind. Um, but he, uh, uh, in Exodus 6, 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, yod heh I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, so on and so forth, and we've already read this. But what does it mean, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, yod heh I did not make myself known to them. Now, there is, uh, for those who know what the, what is it, the JEPD or whatever theory, that there was four writers uh, to, the, to the Torah, right, the four authors. They take this as, as proof that there was four authors. Um, and the reason why is because yod heh is used all through Genesis, right? And, and uh, yod heh appears to, to Abraham. Right, and set in you know it is it is Yod and so they'll say, see, a later writer was redacting some of the stuff in in Genesis. Well, this is nonsense in my opinion. I think that Moses wrote the whole thing. Um, so what does it mean? I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name Yod they have not known me. And I heard a teacher that, uh, just this morning I was listening who said. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nobody knew the name yod heh vav until this, this point in time. Well, I, I reject that as well. And the reason why is because I think what this means is that yod heh vav to know the name of yod heh vav is to understand in ways that haven't been understood before the characteristic of who, who God is. Absolutely spot on. It has to do with what Shem is, name. The idea is my reputation. It's like, right. it's not, do I pronounce it Yehovah, Yehovah, yeah, and I just keep, you know, I'm going to stand on the, on the, the, the Temple Mount and I'm going to keep trying names until finally Messiah comes back when I get the right one. You know, that's not, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. Caleb, you're right on. This is Abraham by faith. Abraham did not see in his own flesh and blood lifetime this fulfillment. But he didn't. He he knew that it was true. Right. He believed it. But here, what he's saying, I and that's why verse uh, where it says verse four, "Vegam hakimotiet briti itam." I will fulfill. I will uphold. I will fulfill my covenant with them. In other words, right. Abraham wasn't didn't see this act. This act was beyond Abraham's natural lifetime. But God, who changes not, and for whom time is not an issue, is now, now is the time I'm remembering it. Now is the time I'm in, uh, fulfilling my promise. And in so doing, his character and his glory is being exalted and being upheld to be true and unshakable and firm. And that's that's how we learn about who his name is or what his name is. Well, and not only that, but we see, you know, he says, he says to Moses, he says, who should I say you are? And he says, tell him I am has sent you, right? I am has sent you. Well, then God reveals himself in a way, not only to Israel, but also to Egypt, that 
I don't think that is different than the way that he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is that he destroys through the plagues, right? Each plague is, uh, and this is debatable, I know, but each plague can be related to a, a uh, Egyptian deity or some form of a, a thought of deity within Egypt. And he goes in and he destroys all of them. He kills them, right? And he is the only one left standing. And this is different. He, this is dealing differently than the way that he dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't just slaughter. I mean, it could be argued that he did with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But he just, I mean, he just totally annihilates the other, the other deities. The, yeah, he is seen. true. He is eternal. He is holy. He is just. He, all the things that he says he is, he is. And that endures and persists at any point in human history. He is the same. And that he, what he's doing, he's writing a story in history, the calling of Abraham, and all, all the things, you know, that we know, he ties his name to this people and right. to this promise. Yeah. And, it's a and beautiful he, thing. Beautiful, he he beautiful. redeems, right? This, it's not just redemption. He, he redeems the entire nation. He's revealing himself more and more throughout time uh, in, in this way, in this way of redemption. And the Exodus is a perfect way to see that. And I think that that's what it means when he says, um, you know, uh, in this passage, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they knew me by El Shaddai, but you will know me by yod heh In other words, I'm revealing more of who I am and more of what this covenant relationship is that you will have with me. It's not just, it's not just the promised Messiah will deal with sin. It's how he will deal with sin, which is personal covenant relationship with each individual. All right. and, and Abraham received it by faith, by revelation, right? This is a re- if you just think in terms of heaven and earth, right? The heavenly realm revealed to the earthly realm. Abraham didn't derive it. He didn't. He wasn't studying some book and thought, oh, you know, there must be a God, right? Right. I know some rabbinic midrash tells that kind of story that Abraham kind of used rational thought to, and then kind of had this rational proof of God. Well, I I don't think that fits with scripture. Rather, this is God having, knowing the end from the beginning, but also having an elect throughout history that he was going to reveal himself to that would result in the, all the world being full of the knowledge of God, that his glory would be, would shine forth and all his characteristics, all his characteristics would would shine forth in all their glory, all his glory, uh, and that he had sons, right? He had chosen, he had children, that he that were going to participate in this glory. And as that, uh, that's always behind the scenes, right? That's that's why why the story is going the direction it's going. Right. Ultimately, in the birth of of Messiah Yeshua for uh, for. Uh, our core point here is back to um, we can't think of, someone emailed me recently about, well, if there was hypothetically, if there was a temple today, could a, let's say there's a one Torah Gentile, you know, could they go and participate in the Passover? Or if there's a Christian who's uncircumcised, uncircumcised male who wants to go to Israel, 
and participate in the Passover. And I'm like, well, you know, it, this is all hypothetical. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is the commandment is in Exodus 12, the uncircumcised will not participate. Right. In a Passover Seder. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, if you're Israeli born or na- native or, uh, or foreign born, that circumcision is a requirement. Well, does that just mean, oh, all they needed was to have their, their foreskin lopped off? Or is when Moses is teaching about the circumcision, is he talking about, yes, physical circumcision, but physical circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant? In other words, this is Abraham's family that participates in the Passover that like, in other words, you, you, you have to have a, there's a, there's a, a broader story that you are part of that. This is a mark of, it's not just a physical, uh, cause the, the other question is this. Well, let's say, let's say there is hypothetically, there is a temple today. They real some, you know, some Jews get together, they rebuild a temple and they set up everything. Okay. So let's say you have an ultra Orthodox Jew, circumcised eighth day, but he, he rejects Yeshua. He's actually been part of burning, let's say, New Testaments in Israel, and he goes and celebrates Passover. Okay, is God, is he fulfilling his obligation in God's eyes, right? He's circumcised the eighth day, he's at this temple in Jerusalem, and he's, he's eating the Passover. Does God, what's God's perspective on that? Right. Is he somehow, oh, you know, this, this man is righteous, um, I would say no. I would just like Paul of Tarsus. Right. There's a reason why or Saul of Tarsus changed his direction in life. There's a reason why he stopped behaving a certain way and started behaving a brand new way with all he had. And the, the love of the true living God of Israel was behind that shift. And everything before that, he's like, that was like dung. Right. Because now it's like, okay, now I see, and now I don't I care it. what they, do, I don't care what they do to me. Right. I don't care what the existing systems of the world do to me. I'm not budging from this course. So uh, PJ asks a question, which I I thought I already answered, but we'll read it again and, and be more specific, I guess. My question relates to Caleb's view that to know God by Yodhevave meant to have that interaction of God's character. I'm not sure I said that. Interaction. I'm not. Uh, That's not what I said. But anyway, so it begs the question: What is the Yod Heh characteristic different than El Shaddai? So, in other words, what's different between El Shaddai and Yod Heh And I, what I already said was, I think that he reveals himself in a way that's different, which is uh, to uh, conquer uh, not only the gods of Egypt and be the only one. That is the I am. I am the only one. Um, but also. That, uh, I mean, I take the, and this is a little bit off topic, but I, I take the view that El Shaddai, I, I think my father's, uh, my father's work on this is, is good work, and I, I agree with him, that El Shaddai tends to be uh, linked specifically with the God who brings children. So El Shaddai was seen as the God who would bring... So the prom- of the God of a promise. In other words, right. there's that the, he would, maybe that, the promise side is, is being emphasized. That he would bring the seed. That he would be the one who brought the seed. But now what we see is that God is also the God of a nation, the redemption of an entire nation, not just to bring the Messiah. Fulfilling the promise. Fulfilling the promise and fulfilling the promise not only to to individuals in personal, uh, in personal, uh, conquering personal sin, but in redemption of an entire nation. And doing that through conquering 
the false gods of the other nations. That's what I think. I think it's different. As the El Shaddai was seen as the God who would bring forth the seed, which is true. God is that, right? But now God switches uh, his emphasis, not his role, but his emphasis to the only God who conquers and brings forth a nation. That's what I think. You know, there's an interesting uh, midrash on Shaddai in the early rabbinic text where it's like they take the word because it's shin, dalit, yod, mm-hmm. and they uh, break it, they parse it not as a name, but as Shaddai, who is sufficient, God who is sufficient for all my needs. So the idea is that El, uh, by the name El Shaddai is the God uh, who provides for our local immediate and, and life needs, right? right? Like our local provider. Yes. And that the promises that are beyond that, um, we, you know, we don't need to worry about. He, he provides for us. Whereas the yod vav idea is this, what Caleb's saying, is beyond our lifetime, big picture promises that are generations and generations down the road that he's faithful, that he's going to... So it's the same... It's not saying it's a different God. Well, and um, the, and we could also say that... Uh, maybe we could hypothesize that perhaps one of the things that we see within the promise to Abraham is this land, right? right? So I am the God who's going to bring you into this land, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make these things happen in the land. When he hits Egypt with the plagues, he's no longer the God of this land. He's the God, he, he is affecting the world. He is the creator. I mean, and not that Abraham didn't get that, you know, he, he looks into the stars and, you know, it seems like Abraham already has this idea, but now God is affecting it. He's, he's and showing. He's, and he's judging the gods, the Elohei Mitzrayim, the, ju- right. the gods of, uh, of Egypt. He's judging um, which is wow, yeah. There's some really good discussion going on in the uh, in the chat. Wow, room right really now, good so. stuff. You yeah. know, a lot of this stuff is still. I don't claim to understand all this stuff. You know, I, I like chewing on it, and I think it's great for us to discuss it. And this is all the more these discussions. Uh, we kind of hit a ceiling until we can start looking at the original languages. You know, as is always the case. Sure. So that always adds uh, richness and more nutrients to our to the discussion, but, um, good, good stuff. Well, you know, the, I, I was thinking about proposing to our small group, uh, that we study the Exodus up until Passover. Cause we're all going to do Passover together. The small group that I'm a part of, we're going to do Passover together. And so I thought, oh yeah, maybe I'll propose that we should study X, ex- you know, the Exodus and the, and the Passover up until the celebration of Passover. And I thought, man, People have heard this story so many times, I wonder if they're going to be interested or, or not. And I started reading, I started in like Exodus 3, and every, it doesn't matter. Every time I read the Exodus story, I'm I'm learning uh, uh, not just a little bit, but I learn a ton more. I it, It's like seeing everything in a new light every time I go through it. There's just so many little nuances and so many things that, I mean, it's like, I pass over them and I don't even realize. And the next time I go back, I catch a couple of them. And it's just adding like these, these blocks to this, you know, I don't know, to this massive, (laughs) this massive story. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. All right. So I hope that everyone has enjoyed this uh, discussion that we've had, and we're going to continue on with this. Um, Whether or not we're going to continue on in the Exodus narrative, uh, who knows, but we're going to continue to uh, look at the messianic expectation of the first century, what they believed and how they believed it, why they believed it, 
And also, um, maybe we'll start looking at some of the various sects. I mean, getting into into Dead Sea Scroll studies is, is I think, beyond <laughs> – it's beyond my expertise. There's no doubt about that. I'm not a Dead Sea Scroll uh, s- scholar and certainly not even a, a student of the Dead Sea Scrolls at this point. We need somebody like Ryan Blackwelder to come on and, and uh, school us on those kind of things. Um, but this much I can say is that we will, uh, we will continue to talk about uh, the Messiah – And we will continue to talk about um, the way that he has affected our own lives through salvation and for uh, everyone who's in the body of the Messiah. And so I hope that you've enjoyed this time. Come back next week as we attempt to uh, glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, because Messiah matters. (laughs) 